This edition of Monocle on Sunday was first broadcast on the 10th of April 2022 on Monocle 24. Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. Coming up on today's program, Ben Ozog is here, also Urs Buller from the NZZ. They'll share their views on the week's biggest stories. Benno is right beside me. Benno, you've got the FT open. Is that where you want to start or are we going to go somewhere else this morning? The FT is a good start, actually, but it's focusing on Ukraine. Surprise. Um, as we're still kind of digesting this this massacre in Bucha, but also this shelling of the, of the railway station in Kramatorsk, Militarily, it's eerily quiet because we're all bracing ourselves for the upcoming Russian offensive and the West, and that's the article in the FT, is asking itself how to arm Ukraine most efficiently ahead of this offensive. Very good, Ben. Also, our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, will bring us the views from London. We'll head to Reykjavik to hear from one of the editors of the country's main daily newspaper. We'll also be in Paris as France goes to the polls for the first round of the presidential elections. And we're going to cross to Bangkok. This is Gwen Robinson in Bangkok for M24, and I'll be bringing you the latest on Thailand's great reopening. Gwen, thanks for that. Sounds like you're in a mall this morning. It's the 10th of April 2022, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brulé. Very sunny, rather chilly uh, Zurich this morning. I think it's going to probably warm up. Uh, it's certainly uh, hot, maybe about uh, 50, uh, 70 meters from here. Uh, the Zurich Marathon uh, is on. Uh, ben Ozog is here, uh, our security correspondent, uh, also, of course, uh, with the School of Security Studies at Eteha. Good morning, Ben. Very nice to see you. Uh, have you already finished it already? You've already sort of showered, you're uh, dried off, you're, you've already done your track, right? Your 40K is finished. Certainly, my 40Ks are finished. You'll you'll smell it soon enough that I haven't showered after <laughs> priorities to get here. Well, no, unfortunately, uh, th- thankfully, it's a big desk we have here. So, uh, but no more social distancing, which is which is also good news. Clearly not. Since since all the city is a bit of a marathon track, my own cycle course to to Die Fußstraße 90 to Monocle Studio turned into a bit of an obstacle course as well. Um, so I myself was a bit later than expected. I think Urs, Urs Bühler is just uh, across the table from me as well. Urs, uh, yeah, very good to see you. You're, I mean, you are looking very, very trim. I mean, not that you weren't trim the last time we saw you, but I think that, <laughs> but before you, um, I think that was maybe, maybe it was autumn because you were heading off to yeah, Stromboli. Yes. Very difficult to do a marathon on, on Stromboli. How does, <laughs> when you're on an Aeolian island, how does one stay fit? Is that just uh, jumping in the sea or what happens i'm not fit at all so i just look like that so (laughs) (laughs) well don't don't get me running i only run when i would miss the train and that's the only reason for me to run or if i hit have to hit the ball for example in tennis yeah that's okay well we'll we'll, we'll look forward uh, to seeing that of course as the the tennis season uh kicks into gear um speaking of things kicking into gear we're going to uh, start though in paris uh this morning of course uh french voters are going to the polls uh if you look at any of the reports right now uh really looking like it could be a record low turnout uh, for the first round but i'm happy to say that uh, france biederman is uh, on the line from uh, afp uh, one of the news editors there uh, france good morning good morning tyler 
Uh, let's uh, maybe just start. Of course, we've heard that uh, many, many hours ago, uh, the polls opened in, of course, other French uh, territories and Saint-Pierre-Miquelon and, and else, elsewhere. And I guess most polls will close, certainly uh, in continental France, uh, at uh, 1900 this evening. Uh, and last I saw, looking at, at, at of course, your news wires, uh, looking at uh, Le Figaro this morning, uh, we're, we're talking about maybe a gap, according to pollsters, of something in the area of 6% between uh, Monsieur Macron and uh, Madame Le Pen? And maybe even less, you know. I mean, this is uh, really the striking uh, uh, side of this election, uh, that for first time there would be such a narrow margin uh, between uh, a contender of the extreme right and uh, and uh, the, the the presidential contender and uh, Mr. Macron or whoever is uh, is candidate for to be a president. So that's uh, if the polls are right, that would be unprecedented in, uh, in French history. Now, of course, uh, the, the polling uh, companies uh, tend to be rather large uh, multinational organizations uh, which do this in many markets around the world. Uh, how how are, the, are the French polls, though, uh, any different? Uh, and and what, what is your sense of sort of margin of, of error? Uh, and, and could we, be see, or could we see that, um, yeah, that, that, of course, the polling agencies might have it uh, dramatically wrong? Dramatically wrong, I don't think, you know, uh, it's not like uh, Trump election or Brexit, you know, I mean, uh, it, it doesn't seem that they, they will be, okay, they may not be accurate, you may have a surprise, but uh, all in all, you know, during all those years, they, they have been pretty close to, to what was happening. So um, you, you, you can still rely on, on the fact that they, they probably give uh, uh, the right picture, like, okay, with differences again, and maybe with possible surprise, but it still seems like uh, the in the run of uh, the two contenders will be Emmanuel Macron uh, and Marine Le Pen. That doesn't seem to 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 be um, uh, disproved by, by by the facts. That that's probably what will happen. But then, what happens? Uh, with other candidates, whether there will be a surge, you know, of the extreme left. I mean, for example, the the extreme left contender uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon is hoping to to make it in in the second round. So it's a possibility, but it's 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 a vague possibility. Let's say the the main facts are uh, Macron and Le Pen in the second round. Maybe just to tell us, uh, Florence, uh, we, we've read a lot about the softening, uh, the reinvention of, of Marine Le Pen, uh, a, a more smiley, a more engaged uh, figure uh, who has been out, of course, uh, shaking hands, uh, doing town hall rallies, all of these things. Is that, is that quite an accurate picture? Of course, that's what the, the spin doctors would like us to believe. But do you think also that the voters are seeing, and of course, there's policy as well with this, uh, but are voters being confronted with a, a different face of Marine Le Pen this, this time around? Yeah, a different face, certainly. A different program, no. But she really managed to, to present herself, you know, as a cat-loving housewife, you know, who raised her children on her own. You know, she, she really managed to to give some personal aspects uh, uh, of her, her character that were more <laughs> engaging than what she really is. And also, she was clever enough to, to make a campaign very close to the people. You know, she went from town to town, city to city. She focused a lot on uh, social uh, problems, on uh, the cost of living, which is the main, uh, by the way, the main uh, topic for for French voters. So she left aside uh, the less engaging 
uh, aspect of our program, which is like laws uh, on immigration, I mean, uh, closing the borders, uh, defiance towards NATO, towards the EU, all those aspects were left aside. Uh, and yes, I mean, she managed to to detoxify uh, the Le Pen brand. And you can feel that people are sensitive to the fact that she's, uh, again, close to close to their everyday life, which is, of course, and which has always been the, the big problem for Macron, who seems to be really pretty detached and, uh, and aloof. And by the way, the fact that he focused on trying to solve the war in Ukraine in uh, talking to Vladimir Putin has somehow, can somehow have reinforced this uh, uh, this aspect, like people feel he's more interested in foreign affairs than in really uh, running the campaign and uh, putting uh, all his uh, forces in the campaign. Indeed, because of course there was much made of, of multiple conversations that that uh, were had uh, with Vladimir Putin, and of course uh, with um, very very few uh, results, uh, at least uh, ones that have that have been made public. Indeed. You mentioned the word um, aloof. How much do you think this is going to sting? And is this going to be perhaps the the element, uh, Florence, that that really closes the gap? I mean, here you saw at, really at every turn that Marine Le Pen has been out. Uh, Really crisscrossing uh, the country, and and really, I would say, at least from a you know an international perspective or from a foreign news perspective, we only saw one big rally uh, around Macron, and, and rather sort of late in in the game. Is that going to be one of the telling features from your perspective? Yeah, it certainly is, and he may have made an error in this. I think um, just after the the war in Ukraine started, there was kind of you know of stupor and horror in a. In, uh, in the whole world, maybe, but especially in Europe, because we are very close to Russia. So he benefited of this effect because the people saw him as the one, uh, the statesman able to, to protect them against uh, whatever was going to come. But uh, this effect has been diluted now. And um, if he bet that uh, it was enough for him like to to play this role of statesman and uh, and uh, to leave uh, the campaign uh, go smoothly and to enter the second round with a, a big advantage then uh, he was mistaken and uh, i think there is now a certain nervousness in in his camp because of uh, his lack yes of public appearance he refused to debate with uh, the other candidates which Okay, other incumbent presidents also refused to do, but in this situation, maybe uh, it was not such a good idea. And he appears, yes, uh, not to have really involved himself that much uh, in the campaign. And that, yes, will certainly uh, not uh, change the image he's giving of being a bit far from uh, everybody's uh, daily problems. Florence Biedemann uh, from Agence France Press uh, joining us uh, from Paris this morning. Uh, thank you very much for that. Uh, just uh, coming up to uh, quarter past uh, 10 here in Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. Uh, ben Azog uh, is here. Ben, just uh, listening to that and, and really that focus on on, on Ukraine. And we'll come, of course, to, to the broader Ukraine topic uh, in, in a moment. Um, a bit of a misstep uh, when you look at, again, these very sort of public, very PR'd conversations that happen between uh, the, the Elysee uh, and uh, Elysee Palace and and the Kremlin and with with very very little in in the way of of results um, and maybe just fo focusing on the the election 
Do you think this this harms him? But also when we look at the Europe project in in general, um, that here we have probably certainly the most entrenched leader um, and maybe one of the more trusted leaders um, at, at the moment, um, that this didn't um, really bear much fruit. Mm-hmm. That is indeed quite interesting because Emmanuel Macron is one of these European leaders that still remaining because Boris Johnson with the UK leaving the EU is partially out, Germany with a new government. So he was one of these few trusted faces somewhat and he's taken this role quite seriously and has met Vladimir Putin several times and has called him, including in in recent weeks, several times as well. Um, But we all remember these images of this very, very long table, 10 metres between the two leaders and as you say, Tyler, no results to show for. Uh, if anything, more massacres, more shelling, more more atrocities on, on the part of the Russian forces. So this has painted a bit of a mixed picture for someone like uh, Emmanuel Macron, who's trying to be this European leader, who's tried to be strong on foreign policy. That's always been his strong, his strong suit. But yeah, has nothing to show for. The war goes on. It's a very much of a, of a mixed record. Um, and... At least what may what, what may give him some credibility is that um, the coordination with other European leaders is working fairly well with Germany as well. There's no none of these obvious contradictions between major leaders that we've seen in the past, and that has looked either Paris or Berlin or both look a bit confused um, and weak as well if they haven't managed this unity. So on foreign policy, very much of a mixed picture. And Vladimir Putin, with his re- relentless war, is obviously mostly responsible. But Macron next to him or far away from him at the other end of the table looks a bit powerless. But I assume it will not be the decisive element for the elections. As we've heard earlier, people very much have their domestic worries, including prices, inflation and so on. Uh, Our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, uh, is joining us from London uh, this morning. Uh, Andrew, good morning. Good morning, Tyler. All Let's uh, just stuff. maybe uh, gaze across the channel. I don't know if you've been out on uh, out, out on the trot. You have heard, of course, we have a marathon going on. I, I thought maybe you would also be putting in an appearance um, uh, maybe as as well this year. Uh, maybe this could be sort of a, a premier marathon um, for you. But we'll, we'll talk about Andrew's physical fitness regime in a moment. I was going to ask you, have you seen any cues uh, at, around uh, any uh, any polling stations uh, in, in London? Because uh, someone just sent me a photo here in Zurich. Uh, and it's quite a significant lineup. I mean, over a one hour our weight at the polling station at the Lycée Francais uh, here here in Zurich. So I'm not sure if you've seen the same thing in, in London this morning. Uh, no, I haven't been, uh, ventured over to South Ken, which is, of course, the traditional uh, home of many uh, French people here in London. But certainly, uh, I would imagine that many French people will want to get involved in this election. A couple of things struck me as you were talking there, Tyler, that, the, that Macron has this, the, the, the kind of Obama problem, which is like super popular overseas, liked in, 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 in other capitals around, around Europe, around the world, but has a difficulty with appealing to the ordinary voter back home. So you know, certainly on an international landscape, you would hope that, that actually Macron certainly wins and wins well, because at this point, when we're facing Russia, who's looking for any kind of chink and, and any gap in, in, in our lineup, then you would hope that he, he would win. But it's, it's certainly a nerve-wracking moment. And, and undoubtedly, we're, we're seeing hints coming from uh, correspondents in, in, in America saying that D.C., Washington is very concerned about the, the closeness of this election.
Uh, Andrew, just uh, looking at the, the relationship and maybe also just look at the last 24 hours uh, that we've, of course, had uh, Prime Minister Johnson. He's been in Kiev um, and maybe we'll do a little bit of a look ahead uh, moment around that as well. But how is that playing in the papers this morning? Of course, we see uh, EU Chief Ursula von der Leyen. Uh, she, she, she was really the first out there high profile visit at the back end of the week. And then we see the surprise uh, visit by Boris Johnson as well with a promise of armored personnel carriers uh, and, and obviously uh, other uh, other armed material as well. Well, it's playing well. Uh, the, you know, the, uh, Boris Johnson, for whatever you criticize him, he, he knows how to be a good performative prime minister and he knows what catches people's attention. And I think he, he also genuinely believes in this. This is kind of the sort of issue that he, he can get behind. And Zelensky likes him. As you know, and Zelensky has been very critical of the French and the Germans for being unwilling to send the kinds of munitions and, and the kinds of assistance that they need. And so as you said, there's 120 armoured vehicles we were promised yesterday. He's also promised uh, anti-ship missiles, which would be uh, a, a, a great get for the Ukrainians. And more importantly, he, he's gone there and he's, he's shown his willingness to support Zelensky. So I think it, it's gone down. Most papers here are, are just having to go along with it and just say, you know, it was a, it was a good thing to do. It, it showed his support and, it, and it's hard to kind of question him on that. Benno, at the start of the program, you were talking about uh, there is the sense that all is, is, is quiet, so maybe more on the, the Eastern Front um, in, in this instance, um, and maybe some sense of trepidation that there is going to be an all-out uh, assault. Uh, we see lots of different speculation from all corners of the world as to what could be happening. But what is your read uh, as you look at certainly how things played out at the back end of, of this week? Uh, and, and of course, you know, if you're the Kremlin, you're looking at potentially some very big shifts uh, at the heart of Western Europe as well. Mm. Uh, well, uh, one thing is quite clear. The revelations of this week have shown that Russia is just as relentless or even more relentless and brutal um, in its warfare than it's ever been. And so this retreat from northern Ukraine around the capital, Kiev, was not something that because they just um, limited their war aims or because they became more civilized all of a sudden, it was the opposite. It is rerouting forces towards the east and we should brace ourselves for a major offensive coming up in the coming weeks. I think that's quite clear. Um, and that's also why why the, the Financial Times article that I quoted earlier is so indicative, because as we are waiting for Russia again to to well to make headways into into eastern ukraine with renewed forces with renewed supplies and this is after all the center of where the most battle-hardened ukrainian troops are actually stationed at the old front line if you will within the donbass with these formerly two separatist republics so this is the new battle to come and the west and western leaders and that includes boris johnson who was just in kiev um, are struggling to resupply ukraine in the meantime and while there's a lot of dedication, there's some very practical issues when it comes to that. It reminds me, I once took the train from Lithuania to Poland years ago. At the border, you need to wait for hours because you need to switch trains, essentially, because the two railway systems have different gorges. 
where am I going with that? Apparently the same is true for artillery. So most NATO countries have artillery shells um, with a width of 152 millimeters, but Ukraine uses the old Soviet of 152 millimeters. Those three millimeters make the difference. This essentially means that it's really tricky for NATO countries from their arsenals to resupply Ukrainian army with the shells that they need for their artillery, which is again a very important to repel a Russian attack. And similar similar issues come up with air defense, for example. Slovakia is delivering this S-300, a massive surface-to-air um, defense system that could attack Russian, Russian aircraft, even at high altitudes, but it doesn't have much ammunition to it. So there's this strong will and there's very important um, military transfers that are happening ahead of this potential Russian offensive, but there's technical issue t- issues, there's limitations, there's logistic- logistical issues. A lot of that has to be overcome and that cannot just happen with political will. It also needs to happen really on the ground with creativity, with trying to tap into arsenals from other countries and so on. So there's a real difficulty there and one wonders whether these supplies can reach Ukraine fast enough to actually make a difference. Um, Urs, I just want to go over to you. We were talking just before we went on air about the humanitarian side, the refugee side of this story uh, as well. And I was in Paris this week. I was in I was in Munich. So when you're in Paris, when you're more in Western Europe, you, you don't I mean, you arrive at the train station, uh, you don't see this sense of, of arrival uh, for, for refugees, but certainly in Munich, it's, it's, it was remarkable to see the reception center uh, that is there. And uh, when you're at, yeah, in the heart of Bavaria, it, it feels incredibly close and still, you know, waves of people coming in being processed. Uh, and, and, and likewise, here in Switzerland, I mean, we're seeing also yeah, a bit of a story about what is going to happen with, with, with refugees. Is this sustainable in terms of having people being processed in centers, being hosted in homes? Um, how, how do you read it? Yes, we have those uh, really uh, incredible amounts of refugees. We have now, uh, I think, 26,000 um, since the war has begun uh, six weeks ago. And this is uh, incredibly much, uh, even compared to 2016. Uh, you can say um, um, maybe we are soon at the limits of the, of the room, of the space, of the beds we can uh, give. So they have 7,500 beds, I guess, plus maybe 30,000 hotel beds. And uh, so there are some, uh, some alarmed, some are alarmed that, that this could be uh, too much. But um, in the, on the other hand, it's great to see, I mean, how many host families you have. I have in my surrounding, I have people that uh, host uh, people, uh, refugees from uh, Ukraine. So uh, this solidarity you feel here now. Um, Andrew, just um, certainly back in London, a, a lot of frustration, questions, uh, because of course, uh, we have seen many arrivals in the UK. We see the Home Secretary on one side frustrated, but she's also um, in charge of policy ultimately um, a, as well. Um, and you see Pretty Patel sort of getting it in uh, in the neck a little bit left and right, not just around this issue. Um, but is is there a sense, do you feel that there's a bit of a, an upswell, in, at least in comment, uh, that, uh, that that, that these policies need to get sorted in terms of processing people faster and also giving refugees uh, probably a pretty clear view as, in terms of what's going to happen to them. Yes, I, I think the numbers have finally begun to go up, but there's been lots of funny stories in the, the papers here about you know, people with large houses who are being rejected as potential hosts for Ukrainians because 
the, the the handrail on the stairs isn't deemed safe enough or there's something some quirk with the design of their house that makes it seem unsuitable for hosting say children so i think there's lots of frustration that the it's, it's a bit kind of box ticky with what's happening on the ground i don't think there's ro- anything wrong with having some systems in place you know the, the the idea that everyone could just come and we not know who's here or or how to put them through the system and give social services a heads up so that they can actually be there especially for kids to get them into education so i think it's been slow and then it's also slow because it takes weeks and weeks for people to be allowed to start getting jobs whereas in places like spain they've made it much quicker but i th- i think it's going in the right direction we were just slow and cumbersome at, at, at that initial point I just want to maybe open this up to everyone uh, before we head back uh, to London uh, for the news shortly. Uh, and Andrew, I'll start with you, which is you know, almost over the last two years, we've been talking about the narrowing news agenda and and how we, we just we seem to go from one, maybe two stories at most. And this is what dominates uh, really most of, of, of the headlines, uh, particularly, of course, when you're when you're in an international space. Now, having a conflict in the heart of Europe, uh, it maybe demands that. But of course, we've come off the back of, of corona as well we go from one big story to to the next and i'm just from your you know perspective andrew you've got to of course get newsletters uh, lined up you've got uh, issues uh, to, to get out the door we've got this radio station um to to run do you, you know as we see a lot of graduates will be coming out of journalism school well hopefully they'll graduate um is this a bit of a, a new world and is there is there room and is there a need to to certainly just open up the channels and the stories that we're reporting on well, I, I do agree with you, Tyler. Oddly, it's a bit of a funny weekend because of what's happening here in the UK with the, the Chancellor's Jacko, with uh, Rishi Sunak being uh, chased over his wife's uh, supposed non, well, her non-dom status and uh, seen as a way of dodging paying tax, whether it is or isn't. And there's also, obviously, the French elections, which is playing out. But, you know, there is always... Uh, 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 in British media especially, a tendency to run after the same story, everybody going in the same direction. I think the Ukraine story is interesting because you know it's, it's been, we've had Boris there this weekend, but actually many of the newspapers are not putting it actually on the, on the top run of their websites even now. So if you go to the more popular uh, uh, web, website, say the Daily Mail or something, it would be halfway down before you often get to a Ukraine story. And I've noticed on some days this week that they weren't really covering it. I think they're, they're worried about losing some readers through apathy. But it is a big story and it needs to be covered. But you're right, we, we, we need to be making sure that you know, other stories, we're seeing what's happening in Pakistan today. We have a huge Pakistani community here in, in London. They want to know what's going on there. So we should be making sure that the net stays wide. Um, or so are you are you concerned from from your point of view because just yeah, before we were talking before we went on air as well as you said we go from one no- news story to to the next um, and and a lot of things get pushed to the to the side um, sure domestic stories uh, still still bubble up um, of course everywhere and that might be the leading story in that country but then you end up almost with a two track or, or sort of a two channel news world um, and with very very little room on the edges. Yes, that's what happened. But I mean, this war really needs room in the media. I mean, that's no no doubt about this. But it's it's just this strange situation that we came just came out from Corona. The masks were falling falling uh, last week. So even in trams and bus with buses and trains, we don't have to wear them. Uh, spring is here. We thought now uh, we can celebrate life, and uh, now we are getting into the other crisis. And of course, there is no no way out of this. 
uh, in the media. So we have to <laughs> report this as close as we can. And Ben, just finally, uh, when, when you look at all of your, your news sources, of course, you're in specialist channels as much as you're looking at, at, uh, at sort of the, the dailies uh, and, and maybe the traditional channels. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, that there, I saw a piece saying that this was, you know, CNN has been going through a bit of a personnel crisis, uh, and now this becomes sort of CNN's moment. It's almost this moment of redemption for a lot of these rolling news channels. Uh, you know, they, of course, they had their corona moment. Of course, people had a lot of fatigue. There's only so many tickers you can look at, but it's very different when you can have correspondents sort of popping up all over the place and and getting out and and doing the job in in many ways for the reason that those networks were set up in the first place. Mm. Absolutely. This 24-hour coverage of certain topics um, is exactly what CNN and the others are designed for. And this kind of war is exactly the kind of crisis that one needs this reporting on, at least initially, when everyone is 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 worried is is anxious um is keen to follow every single detail then these channels come in this daily reporting and i notice myself as well that i've been following the live tickers way more than i otherwise would uh, following twitter way more than i otherwise would um and now it's already getting a bit slower you notice that papers and tv channels are already dissecting the ukraine topic um look at different subtopics, if you will, until at some point the topic is exhausted and other stories that we've completely forgotten about need to need to get some room as well. So I try to focus now a bit more on slow journalism to make sure where are my, my blind spots within the Ukraine topic, but also others, of course. And I think that's quite, quite key. At times to go offline for a bit, at times to sit back and actually reflect on what our news diet is and the kind of blind spot this has created. No blind spots back in London. Uh, Emma Nelson uh, is there with the news headlines at uh, 10.32 and 40 seconds. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. Voters in France are casting their ballots in the first round of the presidential elections today. This morning's edition of Le Figaro fears a record low turnout and the far-right candidate Marine Le Pen has been boosted by a YouGov poll that suggests that the majority of young people would back her against Emmanuel Macron. The Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says Russia's aggression has the whole of Europe as a target. Mr Zelensky has urged the West to impose a complete embargo on Russian energy products and to supply Ukraine with additional weapons. Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan has lost a no-confidence vote in his leadership and has been ousted from power. Mr Khan had claimed there was a conspiracy led by the United States to remove him. And an obese monkey is believed to have eaten himself to death after visitors to a Thai market overfed him. Uncle Fatty, the macaque, was given melons, milkshakes, sweet corn and noodles by shoppers at a floating market in Bangkok. At his heaviest, he was 15 kilos, almost twice the average adult weight of eight. He reportedly lost two of those kilos at a fat camp in May three years ago, but had fallen hard off the wagon. And those are the headlines. Back to you, Tyler, in Zurich. Yeah, off the wagon or, or or the boat, whatever whatever mark he was in, straight straight to the straight to the bottom of the Chowpra River. I'm sure uh, we can uh, we can definitely check in. Uh, did uh, uh, with uh, with our Gwen Robinson on that uh, important story uh, in 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 a moment? Is that where did you find that? It was the Bangkok Post? Or what I was can't that? remember where it was. Yeah, don't it was don't re- in, please don't reveal your sources. <laughs> Absolutely, no, it's, it's, a journalist it's part, it's part of Benno's part of Benno's slow deep reading. Uh, <laughs> maybe uh, I must confess when I heard people saying, "Well, we're we're not we're not veering off the main narrative," and I just looked at my headlines oh, and just oh, thought, "Oh yes, we are." Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks very much uh, for that. It's uh, just uh, gone uh, ten thirty. Uh, in Dubai. It's 10.34 here in Zurich and it's 8.34 in Reykjavik where we are heading now. As promised, we're talking now to Carl Blundahl. He's the deputy editor at the Icelandic Daily, the Morgan of Bladet. Uh, good morning, Carl. 
Good morning. How are you? I'm very well, thank you very much. Uh, is it a, a beautiful, crisp uh, morning uh, as you look out uh, over over Reykjavik in the North Atlantic? Yeah, it is. It's a slightly overcast, three degrees, and it's a beautiful morning. Yep. Excellent. Now, if we were looking at uh, your front page uh, the, uh, for the for the weekend uh, paper, um, where where do you want to start? Uh, what is of concern uh, to Icelandic readers? I say the main uh, uh, story on uh, our Sunday magazine is about uh, refugees from Ukraine. Uh, we have a picture of a mother with her daughter. Her name is Olga Keptanar, and her daughter's name is Victoria. And she's saying how when the bomb start, started falling, her daughter started to shake and shiver and cover with fear, and she decided they had to leave. We have about uh, 600 uh, refugees here now, and we're expecting maybe around uh, 2,000 people, but that's only a guess. And sort of that's uh, one of the things that is of main concern right now. Carl, I'm, I'm maybe I'm fascinated to, to, uh, in terms of the the, the arrivals and, and the logistics. As I was saying earlier, it's, it's one thing to be, um, at, you know, at a train station, uh, certainly in in the heart of Europe, and you can of course understand how how people um, arrive and how they're received. From the part of uh, on the part of the Icelandic government, uh, is are they actively? positioned in places where they are bringing in refugees? Uh, do you have uh, aid agencies, NGOs uh, who are in, in Poland and elsewhere who are organizing the transfer? Or is this a case of, of people uh, arriving and, and, and just asking for, for refugee status? Uh, how, how is it playing out if I was at Keflavik Airport right now? It's both. It's both. Uh, the Red Cross is in Poland. And they are helping people. But also there are um, um, uh, Ukrainians who live here and who are in touch with people they know, relatives and friends, and are helping them to get over here. So it's about, you know, it's, 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 you have both uh, going on. Now, maybe there's a, another story, and just to staying with the Icelandic uh, government, um, and this is uh, one about a, a maybe a rather interesting um, a, apology uh, that that has happened uh, amongst uh, yeah the, some some party leadership, or at least from one party leadership uh, to to another. Well, this was a rather uh, uh, strange occurrence. Uh, the Farmers Association they had uh, a, a sort of a convention last weekend. And after the convention, uh, people had the, the, the political parties, they had some uh, parties that they invited them to. And uh, at one of the parties, the head of the progressive party, uh, his name is Sigurd Ingi Johansson, uh, he uttered a slur, a racial epithet, which uh, the head of the uh, Farmers Association, who's a woman, heard. And uh, she wasn't going to make anything of it. But others heard it as well, so it started making the rounds. And then uh, the minister's spokesman, he said that this did not occur. So she stepped forward and said, well, wait a minute, this did occur. So this was a big story, and he ended up having to apologize to her. And uh, this is sort of a, a politician who is very nice, and uh, uh, so this is sort of against his character to behave like this. So. Uh, this was uh, occupied a lot of people, but at the same time, they were uh, uh, privatizing one of the banks or partially privatizing one of the banks. And uh, that story sort of overshadowed this. He was, in, the, in the sense, he was lucky that this was overshadowed by another brouhaha uh, within the government because uh, 
as it turned out, some of the investors who took part in this privatization uh, process are some of the uh, characters who brought uh, the country to ruin uh, back in 2008. So uh, people were not happy with that. Mm. I would imagine this was probably a party, as you said, last last weekend. Um, and I, I just, you know, I, I don't want to guess, but I will. I mean, there's probably some drinking involved um, yes, a, a, as well, as often happens with, yeah. at these at these conventions. But it's interesting, isn't it, Carl? That, and I'm wondering, is, is the story, let's say, dead now because there was an apology made? Um, it's interesting that, that maybe, of course, you had also, you know, a a seasoned leader, she didn't want to make a big deal about it, uh, maybe because these things do happen. People say things, they don't mean them in a malicious way. Other people exactly. want to reinterpret yeah. them and make something of it. Um, so in one way, it's interesting it, maybe to hear, is, is that story sort of finished? Apology is accepted, let's move on. It is sort of, but I think with a politician like that, it stays with you. It's, it's what people remember. So the next time they hear his name, uh, that's the story that comes to mind. It's sort of like Google that, you know, when you when you search Google, it's, it's, all, it's almost always the, the embarrassing things that come to the fore. And I think it's the same with people. You know, it's the embarrassing things that you remember. So it might take a while for him to sort of rehabilitate himself. Hmm. Nevertheless, Just to tell us, yeah, um, we maybe should focus uh, on something from the world of, uh, of arts and, uh, and culture, uh, because there's a rather significant anniversary uh, that you're also uh, covering as well. Something also which has a bit of a French uh, angle on this uh, election day. Yeah, this uh, the um, uh, there's an Icelandic painter. His name is Arro. He's been at it for a long time. He turns ninety this year, and they're having a, a sort of a, a big um, exhibition of his uh, work, of his catalog. And uh, he came to Iceland be, uh, to uh, be present at the opening. And uh, he works in Paris, and he has uh, his pictures. Uh, you can find them at the Bolberg, at the uh, National Gallery in Berlin, and. Uh, uh, he's a pretty prominent figure, even though perhaps he's not a household name. And his, uh, you can find his uh, paintings on, on walls in French towns. And uh, uh, so this, is a, uh, this was a really nice event where he we came here. Uh, he, he told stories and uh, he's uh, still a sprightly 90-year-old. Uh, and uh, it was a really nice to see how uh, this uh, his, uh, occasion is being used to celebrate his art. Carl, just before just before we go, I'm of course we checked in uh, with you a couple of times over over the past uh, two years, and and we saw Iceland sometimes taking a very yeah, progressive stance. Small country, of course, uh, easy to test everybody, but also a country which uh, has an aviation, uh, tourism, global connectivity uh, component, uh, which which is you know, fully relies on on the importance of your airport and getting people back and forth across the Atlantic. So this has been very tricky, but if you you survey the streets uh, this afternoon uh, are you going to are there a lot of tourists back do you feel that 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 so almost that spring summer season uh, is there of connecting traffic between Boston and Dublin and uh, and, and all of the other places that Iceland air flies definitely definitely uh, there are lots of tourists in the streets and uh, tourism is uh, tourism is back basically 
Excellent. Well, well very, yeah. very good to hear. We'll be checking in uh, with you, of course, as the days uh, grow longer uh, as well. Carl Blundell, Deputy uh, Editor at uh, Iceland's uh, Morgan Bladet. Very good to speak to you. It's uh, just uh, gone 10, almost 10.43 here in Zurich. We're heading to Bangkok right after this. You are back with Monocle on Sunday with me, uh, Tyler Brule, also Ben Otsalgis here, and Urs Buller uh, as well from the NZZ Am Zontag. Uh, I'm very happy to say also that uh, Gwen Robinson is, is standing by in Bangkok for us. Uh, Gwen, good morning. Good afternoon, in fact. Sawadika <laughs> uh, to you, Gwen. As I said uh, at the start of the program, uh, when you did your intro, it sounded like you were at a, at a Thai mall. Uh, is, that, is that indeed true? Where did you record that? <laughs> oh, you caught me, yes. <laughs> Just availing myself of the kind of cool Songkran atmosphere. Songkran, as some of you might know, is the uh, Thai traditional New Year. We're just heading into this um, uh, week that is normally a sort of crazy festival of throw water fights and uh, all kinds of festivals. And this year, I must say, slightly dis- uh, subdued because the government has announced uh, that uh, nobody is to have water fights and particularly... Um, you know, grouped together for big parties where they all get drunk and sort of douse each other with water, which is what not everybody's idea of fun, but it's big in Thailand, but it won't be this year, I, I think. Which is which is remarkable because on on the same side, uh, the country continues to to ease entry uh, requirements, though though they're not that easy. Because I can say that I'm standing in a country right now which has a great relationship with Thailand, and I'm often sort of reading stories uh, in Blick, which of course is one of the popular red tops in this country. And there's always stories, Gwen, about unhappy Swiss visitors who say it's just not quite as straightforward. It's all sort of you know presented as one thing by Thai tourism and and uh, and by the tour operators, but there's still complicated testing and things that uh, that still have to happen. Exactly. I I think you're highlighting what is really the fundamental disconnect that has fouled up Thailand's desperate efforts to, you know, regain the tourism economy and and shore up the failing hotels and, like, you know, all the jobs that have been lost. Um, There's a big groundswell for that. But on the other hand, there's a vociferous uh, establishment uh, of very conservative, of uh, medical and also some very conservative, cautious people here. So uh, it's a constant uh, tension. But I think what happened recently, yes, there's been a really significant uh, loosening, very significant. I mean, the ties have dropped this notorious requirement that all travellers must have a PCR test before being allowed on a plane and have another one when you get off the plane and have to quarantine, like stay overnight in a hotel on day one of your arrival check back into an approved hotel on day five for another test, which has really put uh, travellers off. Thailand has finally realised also that I think what's really freaked them out is in recent weeks, all the countries around us here have opened up and really dropped all, almost all rules, Malaysia, Cambodia, even Vietnam, which was notoriously locked down, uh, have uh, thrown all rules out the window. So I think that's goaded the ties to take another step. So we've just heard that there's uh, the government has announced that it is most likely to drop nearly all uh, restrictions, uh, not quite all, because that wouldn't be Thai, um, but uh, nearly all uh, fairly soon. I think it, we can probably expect in uh, May that uh, things the um, 
you know, the remaining uh, pressure will, will come off. Um, but we'll see. I think, if I can just add, a, a big test is going to be the resumption this month, next week, actually, of this crazy full moon party that kind of became a big, uh, you know, a big pull for ravers on the international party circuit held on the southern island of um, Koh Phangan. Uh, and uh, I think became quite famous or notorious for um, uh, a real sort of mecca for uh, young, uh, young cool travellers and sort of rich hippies. Uh, that's going to resume uh, in this full moon. That's next week. So I think there's quite a bit of nervousness about that. It, it, is, it could potentially be a super spreader event, but we'll see. Well, Ben Ben is looking quite excited because uh, before we went on air, we were trying to figure out his holidays. So, uh, full, full, full moon party uh, for him uh, sounds like sounds like it could it could be sorted. Gwen, just um, tell me though, when you uh, venture out uh, to the mall elsewhere, do, do you do you notice that um, yeah that that foreigners are back? That uh, there's a lot of farangs uh, out out on the out on the streets uh, again, or or not? Well. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. It's hard to sort of tell the difference, actually, because Bangkok is such a, um, a hub for uh, a lot of foreign expatriates. Uh, it's really hard to tell, you know, who is obviously a tourist and who isn't. I've heard that, I mean, the real hub in, in Bangkok for the kind of itinerant backpacker-type travellers is Khao San Road. That's still fairly empty. But as I said, there is this sense that... Uh, um, like the travel industry, for example, is saying bookings are way ahead of what they expected. There's actually been, um, you know, just uh, about 400,000 visitors have come in since January, January to March. But they said in March alone, it was 200,000. So 50% of those visitors have just come in one month. And uh, bookings are looking very good for coming forward. So I think there's a lot of hope. And when I went to the shopping mall, I saw... Quite a lot of, as, as you said, farangs, as they're called here. Um, you know, were they were they backpackers and uh, and um, international tourists? Hard to tell. And uh, also the tourist attractions like the Grand Palace and the and the Riverside. Um, you know, doing a, a buzzing trade with a lot of foreigners uh, visible. Um, but I wouldn't say it's nothing like the levels before. Let's just remind listeners that this country was attracting 40 million tourists a year uh, just before the COVID uh, thing all exploded in 2020. And, and their, their best hope this year is, is I think, about 2 million or, or something like that. So it's it's tiny fraction. And, of course, you know, the top two uh, sectors of, of travellers was uh, the Chinese and the Russians. Um, so, you know, let's forget them. <laughs> Just on that, good. What what uh, has has happened? Because obviously, you have a lot of Russians uh, who are almost living there full full time, uh, not far down the coast uh, from from where you are. Uh, what 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 is the the situation? Because certainly, many parts of the world, you know, we've 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 heard, of course, people not Russians not being able to pay for their hotel rooms, having to pawn watches. It's a good time to be in the pawn shop business um, right now. But what is what does that mean in uh, in in Thai terms? Yeah, of course, if you say pawn shop in Thailand, you know what you get. You're not getting somewhere to <laughs> oh, yeah. go for certain amount of watches. Um, but, um, but anyway, the, um, it's really interesting because, as you said, it's, it's actually been quite a, a, a centre in Thailand for very wealthy Russians, uh, particularly who seem to love the kind of Paradise Island villa kind of resort. So Phuket, uh, to a lesser extent, Koh Samui, and, of course, 
Pattaya, which is just a short drive from Bangkok, but seems to attract not quite that high-flying level of Russian tourists, but sort of, let's just say, sort of slightly lower level. It's, it's known for the seedy bars, and, and uh, I think its nickname really is um, often called Pattayavsky. Um, and uh, we've heard incredible stories, like you just mentioned. You're probably hearing them all over the world, but I think in Thailand it's particularly prevalent that in Phuket you've got a lot of rich Russians who ran up huge hotel bills, were taken unawares by the sort of whole the Ukraine invasion and then the, the pushback from the West on um, sort of banking restrictions and things. So they're all stuck in Phuket having run up huge bills, unable to use their credit cards, unable to access cash. And uh, I, I, the tries, you know, there's, the travel industry is having conniptions about some of this because the bills are very big. I mean, you're always hearing stories about wealthy Russians, you know, paying sort of, you know, $20,000 for a dinner, uh, things like that. So you can bet there's a lot of bills in limbo and uh, a lot of very worried hotel uh, industry people. The other one to remember is actually there were not, <laughs> there were quite a few Ukrainians who uh, would come on holiday to Thailand and there's, there were quite a few stuck, uh, stranded in, um, again, Phuket. And uh, you know, a lot of them don't even have a home to go back to, let alone any way to go back. So that's also been a story in Thailand. Mm. Gwen, I just want to bring in uh, our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. Andrew, we won't, we won't name hotels, but you heard a very interesting story um, up in the mountains uh, la- last week uh, about yeah, some very high hotel bills, but also some very expensive watches that had to be left at the front desk. Yes, as as the sanctions hit and credit cards were cancelled and swift payments were no longer possible, uh, in certain hotels up in Alpine regions, Russians suddenly found they were unable to pay their bills and wanted to find a way of uh, leaving without too much disgrace. So handed over watches, jewellery, often purchased only in, in the previous days, many of them still in their boxes, gave them to hotel managers who uh, worked out what they're worth, put them in their safes. So at, at the moment, there are many, many grand hotels who seem to have rather a lot of jewellery on their hands. Mm. I just want to maybe um, round out the program, bring everybody um, in, and maybe Andrew, I'll start with you on on sort of a topic of just going back to where we're saying this, this kind of this very focused news agenda that uh, that we're in the middle of, and just going back to also talking to uh, to Carl Blundell, where we had this incident in Iceland. Someone overhears something, um, of course, uh, someone else tries to make a big deal about it, and this sort of divisive, you know, these divisive events that, that, that are happening increasingly, the overheard, the social justice warrior who sort of, you know, takes on the battle on the part of someone else who wasn't even really offended in the first place. Andrew, do you think we sort of moved to a place that we're also fatigued by this um, as well? Or does the world of, of, of social media, the fuel of Twitter, uh, keep, keep these things going? I'm just, I've sort of been thinking about, are we going to move into a phase of when you've had a conflict, that we just need to get back to what what is the real story, even if it's the dominant story, um, and and have a bit of a, a stock take, uh, certainly off, off off the back of a conflict, and and you know, and two two not great years. Well, I think when you look at the newspapers this morning, you see some of the atrocities that are happening at the heart of Europe. Then I think you 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 have to be an idiot if you're too caught up in the battles of the so-called culture wars. And the trouble is that with these culture wars, you know, there are some very genuine uh, lines here to be debated and argued. But actually, for papers on 
both left and right, they've learned that they are they are kind of like s- stories that everybody hurries to read and, and and debate. And actually, when you pick some of them apart, they seem to be utter nonsense. But there is undoubtedly uh, here in, in the UK, for example, every every day there's a story about trans rights and you know, the fors and the against. Because Boris Johnson said, you know, that he believed a man was a man and, and a woman was a woman. Suddenly, that has given more airtime to that across the week as well. But you're right. There's you know there are there are serious stories here, and I think what what fails to happen then is 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 the more joining up of narratives. Because there isn't just one story, obviously playing out. But, you know, when we look at Ukraine, when we look at what's happening with Boris Johnson, when you look at happening what's happening with Rishi Sunak, when when you look at what's happening in France, there is a debate to be had here about you know what is Europe, what do we expect from our leaders, and not just what is Europe in the, in the physical space it occupies, what is it what does it mentally occupy, what 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 is the meaning of Europe? Something we debated up in the mountains last weekend, Tyler. But somehow the the analysis gets lost when you you're you're just jumping from headline to headline. Mm. Ursa, what's your take on that in terms of just, yeah, being able to move on from a story? Um, and, you know, as we're saying, this, this kind of this collision of culture wars, yeah, some of the topics important, maybe some of them not so important, but we get so wrapped up in them. Yeah, of some of them, we have got very much wrapped up. I think, yes, yeah, so all, all the, this uh, little story about uh, cult, cult, cancel culture and so on. So I think uh, they have to, put aside now uh, for a while and uh, yeah I, th- I think it's a big problem of social media of course but the media have their responsibility too in this uh, topic so they have to to back um, to go back a little bit I, I, think. I, th- I think so Benno uh, a way to uh, re- resolve this uh, staying <laughs> off social media but uh, but from a, from a conflict re- resolution point of view in 30 seconds or less uh, <laughs> you know is, is it do we need to be able to take an apology as an apology and 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 move on of course we have the weight of history on our shoulders as well but <laughs> I think there's really two sides to it I mean we we all know the pattern politician a let's call him Boris or so, says X, Y, it's offensive, it may be racist, and so on. Then there's a shitstorm, then there's apology, the story dies. These articles are ubiquitous, and they could actually be written by artificial intelligence, I think. Maybe they already are. It's always the very same pattern. And then the story really dies, and one would imagine a column somewhere in a paper, maybe it exists, that says, Whatever happened to <laughs> half a year later to unpack that story and see what was there actual substance to it? Did it go anywhere? Did any developments happen? Because we should look, and whether that's in security policy or other things, at actual policies about structural changes and so on, more so than quote one politician and um, with a bit of a, of a weird saying mm. or so. I think that's really key. And I'm quite good at actually ignoring these kind of stories, I think. Good. And Gwen Robinson, just quickly, do you think that, uh, yeah, the, the airtime of cancel culture and, uh, yeah, social justice uh, wars uh, from your keen eye in Asia, is it drawing to a close? <laughs> like, Cancel culture means something completely different in Asia, but I do think, I think your broader point about when do you move on from a story, even in Asia, the the whole Ukraine horrors have have dominated, but you can see this, you know, I thought, from this perspective here, watching the the sheer, the the amount of controversy and focus of Will Smith, like, you know, hitting the compare at the Academy Awards, and I think everyone at that point wanted a pause from from the uh, mm. Ukraine and so that got inordinate coverage I mean ridiculous amount of coverage and it meant very when when Robin said we're going to have to leave it there <laughs> we're at the end of the program Monocle on Sunday's back next week have a good week goodbye goodbye